and welcome back to the Indie, the podcast from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent. I'm Molly McEnany, the host of The Indie, and this week I'm starting off the new year with a bit of a Santa Barbara book talk. I'm here with William Peters, author of At Heaven's Door, a book about the metaphysical experience, apparently more common than many realize, of people who accompany their loved ones in the process of dying. Hi, William. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Molly. So I wanted to start off with an excerpt from the book that relates to your work as an end-of-life therapist. Talk to me about this first time in 2000, as you go into, when you felt like you were floating as you led someone to the other side. What was that experience like? So that experience was when I was a hospice volunteer at the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco. And I was a training psychotherapist at that time. And I had this wonderful opportunity at a hospice. And when you're a volunteer, that means you get to be with the people pretty much as long as they're willing to have you, which is great. Like you're not a medical staff that has a series of protocols and services to provide. For me, I could just be at bedside. In this particular instance, I was with Ron, we'll call him Ron. And I had been with him for, I want to say probably at this time, probably an hour or so, but I'd been working with him regularly, probably two, three times a week, reading him this book that he liked. And as I'm reading this book, I still remember the book. It was Call the Wild by Jack London, and he was a merchant marine, so he loved adventure stories. So here I am reading this story, and he's unresponsive. That means he's been in a, you know, what would look like to most of us, a deep sleep has been that way for many days. And as I'm reading, suddenly I pop out of my body and I find myself suspended above my body. And I'm a bit stunned, but I'm also pretty comfortable. And I also, I look over at Ron and he's right there and he's smiling and he's very pleasant. And he's, his look is conveys the sense of check this out as if to say, this is where I've been, or this is where I can go, or isn't this wonderful to be up here? You know, now that we've done the research on these types of experiences, this is what we would call a co-out-of-body experience. So a co-OBE for the acronym. And for those who are familiar with the near-death experience literature, out-of-body experiences are very common. And the shared death experience literature, and I should say a shared death experience, what is a shared death experience? Well, it occurs when a caregiver or loved one is at the bedside of somebody dying and they report that they shared in the transition of the dying into a benevolent afterlife and they use those terms. And I should also be clear, I said at the bedside, we find that two thirds of these experiences happen remotely. But in this situation, while I'm attending to Ron as a hospice worker, the out-of-body experience with us together is quite a profound encounter. <laughs> so the shared death experience, some people find it comforting and others may need some sort of explanation to what has happened. Where do you come in on your search for these stories and how did you begin this journey collecting? So in 2000, when I first started volunteering at Zen Hospice, that experience I had with Ron was kind of my gateway experience in terms of the shared death experience, but I should give it some context. And that is that I had a near-death experience when I was 17 years old in a high-speed skiing accident. So I crushed my spine in an accident. I was catapulted out of my body instantaneously, was moving away rapidly from my body 
and planet Earth, essentially, because my view in that experience was like a satellite view of planet Earth, beautiful Earth. And I was enthralled and enjoying every bit of this. But I also realized at some point that I was dying. When I saw the light, which is a common fixture in the NDE, I realized, oh, my, I'm dying and I don't want to die. So I pled with that light to come back. I did. And, and I didn't think about that experience for a decade that I can remember. I had a second near-death experience, and it was very similar to what I had with Ron, because I had a blood imbalance from medically inclined people. I had idiopathic thromocytopenia, which means that apparently I had very low platelets and was in danger of drowning in my own blood. So I had floated out of my body again in the ICU and apparently was up there for two or three hours. I say up there because I was observing conversations in the ICU, moving down the hallway, I watching janitors do their work, cleaning up in the middle of the night. When I had Ron's experience, I'd been down this train before. I popped out of my body. I fully left my body in the first NDE. So it seems like when I had this experience, either it was perhaps easier for me to do it. I don't know. That's kind of a strange term to use, but I certainly was not unfamiliar with this space. Well, that was what I was just going to ask you. Have you noticed that people with near-death experiences have tendencies to then guide people to the afterlife? That is such a wonderful question. And it is a piece of our research is like, we're trying to figure out what it is about certain people that can have the SDE. In our research, we find that, I want to be careful here, I think that about a quarter of our, the people we've interviewed have more than one SDE. I, that may be a little bit high, so give me some leeway on that. But I do know that 41% of the people will go on to have other what we call shared crossing experiences. And when it was shared crossing experience is an experience that refers to some sort of significant communication across the veil. At least the experiencer refers to it as significant. And, and the reason I, I actually created this shared crossing spectrum of end-of-life experience, because when I was working clinically with people who were coming to me to essentially ask, I heard you could help me figure out this experience. This is right here in Santa Barbara. I used to get referrals, still do actually, but there was a time when there was a particular therapist up at Hospice Santa Barbara and she was full-time. And for whatever reason, she would refer people to me all the time. But it was typically these, these kind of spiritual experiences where people were wondering what this experience was about. To be clear, these people would come to me wondering what their experience was. And as I was listening to it, I would be, I was already reviewing the literature and I could place them in the literature that comes from a variety of disciplines. It comes from parapsychology. It comes from, you know, religion and science. It comes from spiritual traditions that have different paradigms for looking at these experiences. Anthropology as well has identified these historically and, you know, in, in the paintings they see on walls and what have you. So the point being is, I took these experiences that I was coming to me and I was able to essentially link them up, fit them into existing literature, and then created the spectrum. And I don't want to go too much into the spectrum, but just keep in mind that the spectrum includes things like pre-death premonitions, pre-death visions and visitations, 
post-death visions and visitations and synchronicities throughout, like dogs barking at the time of significant events. Well, usually a death is when animals will tend to respond. And then the other one we see is electrical responses, like clocks stop or music comes on. Not just music comes on when you're thinking about a loved one. Their favorite songs come on and who's doing that. And so this may sound like pretty far out phenomena. And I will say when I first started studying this, I was like, come on now, you guys, this is too much fantasy. But we've done the numbers on it, worked the quantitative, looked at it quantitatively, and it falls well beyond coincidence or chance. So point being is these experiences happen and they happen in healthy minds and people need to be affirmed in these experiences. And that's what I see my role is as a psychotherapist, a family therapist, you know, here at the Family Therapy Institute in Santa Barbara. I mean, this is, this is something that I'm encouraging all mental health and spiritual counselors to be familiar with because people are sometimes a bit afraid or anxious to share these because they're are afraid they're going to be labeled as you know something less than healthy. And welcoming an afterlife is just not only a Western tradition, as you mentioned, it's there's rebirth and reincarnation of Buddhism, the ancient Mesopotamians and Greeks and Egyptians have elaborate gates or waterways to the afterlife and so on. So how do you approach people who first come to you after losing a loved one and adopt to their view of an afterlife as a therapist? Yeah, thanks. Great question. Well, I have my own views, of course, but my role as a therapist is to really meet my clients where they are. We start with the phenomena and usually the affirmation of the phenomena place it in a paradigm, you know, somewhere in the academy of being validated. Now I will say it, but at this point in time on the shared death experience and other this other spectrum, our research is already been peer reviewed and published. The article on the shared death experience is in the American Journal of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, which is, you know, we are grateful that that's quite a prestigious journal. I first let them know, hey, I'm very familiar with what you're talking about, and I want you to ask me as many questions as you want. What you're saying to me fits with what I've heard before. If it doesn't fit, I'll say to them, you know, this is what makes sense to me. This I want to explore a little bit more. And we basically, you know, I really focus on developing a sense of trust with them that I'm really here to help them figure out this experience, not to do a mental health assessment. I do a gentle intake to make sure that they're you know, healthy in mind, but that's pretty easy to pick up for a seasoned psychotherapist. There's a lot of somatic cues that let you know if somebody's not healthy. And most people that come to me, and I mean, almost everybody over the last 10 years uh, has been sound in mind. The goal then is to get them to share their experience, me to give feedback, help them make sense of it in a certain way. And then we begin this integration process, which is deepening into the experience to really tap the meaning What's going on here? What do you think is being expressed? How does that feel in your body? What are the thoughts and emotions that arise as you work with this? And is there anything more that that may be coming to you now about this experience? So we really delve deeply and then I help them integrate it, make sense for it for themselves. Like, what is this experience telling you about you, your life? If it's a shared death experience, maybe where your loved one is now your relationship to death and dying, 
What do you think about the spaces that you visited? How would you define it? Do you think you're going to go there? I mean, I have a raft of questions that come up rather organically, but really the goal is to get them comfortable with their experience and for them to make their own meaning-making process. So in cataloging these stories, you're developing almost a social science study. And now there's science around the brain and bodily changes that occur during death called thanatology. And through studying the brain, scientists have been able to record a high flaring of brain power, a surge during death that could lead to the vivid images that people see, like rewatching their life on double speed or feeling like they're moving towards a light. Now, this has been accumulated from studies on those who are dying, but what can you say about the out-of-body experiences of living ones when they guide someone during death? Is it intuition? Is it trauma-based? Is it the fear of losing someone? What can you kind of generalize all of these intuitive feelings under? Yeah, great question. Again, I mean, you're asking a profound question about what is happening for the experiencer the shared death experiencer at the moment of death, or, or not just at the moment, we have 18% of our experiences happen moments before, up to hours before and after. So there's something that seems to be opened up. I refer to it as a energetic vortex of sorts. And it, it seems to me that the experiencers have connected at some very soul spirit, and I'm going to say energetic level with these people. When I mean energetic level, I mean energy body. I mean, and I do think there's something about us energetically that we might want to say is part of our soul spirit that goes from this life to whatever lies beyond. Now, I want to be clear, you know, I have my own views. And as an experiencer, you know, you've already known a few of my experiences. I, I've been to that space many dozen times. And as I feel it, there's a whole energetic component. And as I'm going with this person, wherever they're with you into this next dimension, and there's various, you know, kind of there's, there's kind of levels here. I feel a buzz in my body. I feel like there's a, like a, a hum of an engine almost, you know. So I believe that's my electromagnetic field that is tied into, connected to the dying and as that veil opens, that transition is happening, the, the departure from this space, the entering into another reality, I hitch a ride. This is what we're trying to study. I mean, obviously, as an experiencer, and this is a hypothesis that I'm you know, talking with my other colleagues in the field about, hey, can we, can we look at the physics of this? And the physics holds up. I mean, you know, we know the first law of thermodynamics is, you know, energy cannot be destroyed and cannot be increased, but it can be transmuted or transformed into a different form, if you will. Well, if you think about it and we're energetic bodies, what we, what we undergo at the moment of death is this transformation of formation of our energy and it manifests in a different realm. And I think those of us who are experiencers, we attune to that. We resonate with that and we go with them into this realm as far as we can. We can't go for that long. You know, no one stays over there. So we understand that, that we come back. And a lot of us in our study, and I should say, you know, I talked to a lot of experiences in our studies, we validated this, is that there's a boundary that we feel as in the near-death experience, it comes a boundary that we realize we can't go any further. And so we return soon after that. Once we hit that boundary, we're back. So I hope that explains, I mean, that's just, 
really the answer is we're, we're working on that. And that's my working hypothesis. And do you feel like there's a relationship between this transition to the afterlife and modern studies of space time and bending time and multiple realities? Do you feel like those two things could intersect at some point? Well, I can say that the time space continuum is different in the SDE and people will talk about that. One of the early indications and phenomena or features of the SDE is the geometry of the room changes. You know, hard edges become soft, walls disappear, vision of objects gets a bit hazy or blurry, a lot of colors, which, you know, that's, you know, that if you look deeper into the energetics of this time and space and the presentation of it has a color magnification to it that gets altered. So clearly the time space continuum that we have in the human realm is altered during the SDE. And it's funny because it happens really more at the beginning of the experience. And then when you enter into another dimension, if you will, then it stabilizes again. So that's always very interesting to me, you know, because you don't hear people talking about they're in a completely different dimension. There are no walls in the next dimension. There's no physical domain, if you know what I mean. I mean, there's they're, they're watching, experiencing presentations, uh, beautiful, hyper alive, vibrant, energetic beings, entity things, if you will. But they're not the same as here. Yeah. So as a longtime therapist in Santa Barbara, can you talk to me a bit about your shared crossings project? Yeah. So I started the Shared Crossing Project formally in 2013, but really the work began in 2011. Uh, I had met Dr. Raymond Moody in 2009, and he had, you know, he's the primary proponent of both the near-death experience and at least initially. And then in 2009, he was talking about the shared death experience because the experiences are so similar. And he published a book in 2010, Glimpses of Eternity, which is the first real general public book on SDE. But when I met him and I heard him talk about these experiences, I said, I've had them, I know them. And I asked him, is any research being done? And he says, virtually none. And I said, wow, okay. So I dove in right away and did my lit reviews and thoroughly investigated the field and found that there are some references to these experiences, but they're quite old. I mean, old when I say like, you know, most of the research was back in the late 1800s in the London Society for Psychical Research. And then 1926, there was a, a really groundbreaking book done by Sir William Barrett. And he was also in outside London. And it was called Deathbed Visions. And about 17 of the 40 or 57 some odd experiences were SDE. So, but really not a whole lot, to be honest. But at least the experiences that we were seeing were at least out there. They just didn't really have a name. They were conflated with other phenomena. So I started first by just seeing if there's any interest in Santa Barbara, because I'm thinking, how am I going to get all these cases? I, I wasn't, I wanted to study the SDE, but first I want to see, would there be any interest in Santa Barbara? And the first group, fall of 2011, and I thought to myself, as I was putting together the flyers and started talking about it, I was just nervous that my colleagues would think that I'd gone off the deep end. I mean, you're going to talk about all these end-of-life experiences. You know, the common view of consciousness in the medical sciences is that brain creates consciousness. You're talking about things that consciousness goes on beyond human death. That's going to put us at odds with conventional medical sciences. So, you know, I said, let's just, I just want to do a group, an eight week group where we explore all these different things like pre death, 
dreams, pre-death premonitions, you know, all the things you see on the spectrum of end of life experiences I've already talked about. And what I found was people were riveted, excited, and thankful for the opportunity to bring their experiences and learn more about them. So that first group happened in, like I said, fall 2011. After that, I ran groups three times a year, eight to 12 week groups, pretty much all year long. So this was called the Life Beyond Death group. I'm giving this introduction because this showed me the interest in these experiences. And in 2013, I started the Shared Crossing Project formally with the mission to positively transform people's relationship to death and dying, end of life, through raising awareness and educating people about these end of life experiences, which we now call shared crossings. The second aspect of the mission is I wanted to bring people together in community to dialogue and share stories. With that, more groups happened. I started the Share Crossing Research Initiative the same year to study the methods that I had devised to enable these experiences. That's a longer story because we had 70, I think 76 people in that study, 38 pairs of people because they were interested in one person being kind of a caregiver, the other one who would be presumably dying. So this was a very rich group with people often with an elderly partner or, or mother or relative who was close to death, and then some people with terminal cancer. So this was a, this, we were really working methods to prepare for a conscious, connected, and loving end-of-life experience with the hope that we could enable an SDE. Long story short is the research said we really achieved the goals of well-being and comfortability with death and some decrease, some significant decrease in death anxiety. But the problem was, is that the group was not representative of society because they already had a relatively good relationship with death and dying. They're comfortable enough to take the group. So moving forward, this is the groundbreaking study in 2018, 19 and 20, where we studied, collected, shared death experiences primarily, and interviewed them, assessed them deeply, and put together a team to do that, um, hired Dr. Michael Kinsella, from, who was a UC, at UCSB. He was just a graduate, a recent graduate from their religious studies program, his doctorate program. So he was familiar with the broader literature, but not so much with SDE, so he was kind of perfect because he was neutral on the SDE, didn't have a feeling about or a sense or a study of whether this was even an identifiable pattern. So we created, did this study and found that the hypotheses that I had come up with, which were the first on, on the different forms that, you know, so we had two typologies about both for the experiencer, like what was their experience, and then the other one was the different types of shared death experiences, bedside, remote, multi-person, that means more than one family member, differences around time. So that's, that's what the study did. And now we have, and we've had all along, series of groups that help people get in relationship with death and dying generally, using these experiences as a gateway, and then learn dialogue around how do you talk about what you want at end of life? How do you get your loved ones to engage with you about this very meaningful topic about how you prepare for the best end of life possible. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. And you do have one more project that you started, this recorded web experience on shared death, the first of its kind. Tell me a bit about that. 
Yeah, thanks for asking about that, Molly. It's called the Shared Crossing Story Library. So we have interviewed now, I think, 220 plus people who've had primarily near-death experiences, but other end-of-life experiences as well that fit on our spectrum. And we video all of these. They're all Zoom interviews. And then we can then we edit them down to about three to five minutes and we place them in our library. So we have, we're just doing this slowly. Right now, I believe we have about seven that are up. But the beauty to this is, first of all, it's the first time it's ever been done where you can go to a website and say, I'm curious what to hear what share death experiencers say about their experience. How do they express it? So here you can get that and you can hear these ordinary people like you and I talk about their shared death experiences. And then of course, there's other resources around on the website to help you get a sense for these experiences, but great way to, to learn. It's a resource. And I want to be really clear that this story library was made possible by primarily local donations, primarily for the J.S. Bauer Foundation, Natalie Orfila Foundation, other private donors in town, and uh, also the Novo Foundation, uh, Jennifer and Peter Buffett out of New York. And these are some of our prime funders who've been with us for a while, and we're really grateful that they can make this possible. They share our mission, and it's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing not only your work, but also a bit about your book, William. It was wonderful having you on the show today. Thanks, Molly. Pleasure to be here. I'm here with Mike Eliason, Public Information Officer for the Santa Barbara County Fire Department, to talk about his first book, actually, of photography, Santa Barbara and Beyond the Photography of Mike Eliason. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Molly. So my first question for you is more general, because I wanted to ask what you define as the relationship between art and photojournalism, as I sense you often blur that line between the two in your work. Yeah, it's a funny thing for this community. The way I've always approached the photography is as I've been in other markets where it's a lot more cutthroat. You have the the different media agencies more real fighting for each other. Here we've always worked well together. The Indies work well with the news press and Newshawk and KEYT and KSB. So everybody works well. There's no real no real competition, and yet there is an underlying competition, which is more kind of an unspoken one. But from that side of things, it's always been trying to get the compelling news image first and trying to come up with something different than everybody else, just from the pride's aspect of things. But in the same line, you always try to come up with just a nice image that advances the story or elevates the reader's opinion or about the situation a little bit better. So I've, I've always tried to do that. And in your position with the Santa Barbara County Fire Department, I can't help but think that so much of what aids the development of a story about fires and about landslides and other different natural disasters are the pictures that we see of it. So can you tell me of a time where you've kind of been in the thick of it and what way you use your lens to create this image? With that job at the fire department, usually when you see me in front of the camera, it's usually something that's gone wrong in the community, either whether it be a fire or the 1-9 debris flow or some other hazardous materials or oil spill or something like that. In that time, I've always been some kind of tragedy in the community. So I'm sensitive to what goes on in the community, that aspect, but I still have a job to do to get the information out. 
And a lot of the times I get to the scene before the media does, or in some cases before the media, even the media doesn't get there, I'll, I'll get there and, and, and get the image out. So I try to do my job that way, get it, the picture out respectfully. Still, there's some little bit of rules that are different from media versus working for the county, an official agency with HIPAA concerns. So you can't really show the victims or license plates or things like that that are really identifiable. So you have to be a little more respectful of that. But it's it's a tough job. And I've been doing this for 10 years at the county. And then years ago, I worked as a reserve firefighter at Carpinteria Fire Department for eight years. So I've been on both sides of the camera where I've had them pointed at me when I'm doing a job and then taking a picture. So I think that helps a lot, having been on that other side, knowing what that looks like when you're trying to do a job not to be too intrusive, but yet be respectful and still be able to try and tell a story for the community. And that's a tough thing. I've seen things that you can't unsee, especially with the Montecito debris flow and fires and just tragic events that have happened in this community over the years. And, and I've tried to do a good job of letting people know what's going on accurately. And almost having these natural disasters create a space where you want to get information and share what's going on, but also remain sensitive to the people out there. Yeah, it's definitely a tough, tough line to balance. But there are some of your work that has even gone past Santa Barbara and gone outside. I know that picture of Stern's Wharf, as was mentioned in the article that was published a couple of weeks ago, kind of went viral. Can you tell me about how that happened? Well, just because of Santa Barbara, it, of where we are and who we are, um, it, if anything serious happens here, it becomes national news. The proximity to Los Angeles and Hollywood and everything, and there's so many celebrities that live here, it does become national news. So we had a the, the storm that you're talking about, we had an electrical storm, which for California standards was pretty spectacular. People in Tampa and Dallas were probably shaking their heads at us because that happens to them every day. But for us, when we had over a thousand lightning strikes in Southern California one evening, that was a big deal. So what I did was I knew I had to capture that because we were already on edge. It was post 1-9 Montecito. So we were already on edge worried about any other future debris flows. So I have a couple apps on my phone that shows where the radar and the rain is going and then also a real-time lightning tracker. And so I knew the storm was coming. And uh, so I set up on Stern's Wharf and like I kind of joke, I said, what can, what can possibly go wrong? I'm, I'm standing on a wooden wharf in a puddle with a metal tripod and an electrical storm. What what else can go wrong here? So the only thing I didn't have was a, a one iron. But as Lee Trevino famously said, even God can't hit a one iron. So that's a good thing. Yeah. So I managed to get some series of lightning shots as it progressed over the Mesa and went over downtown. And the, and the pictures ran in a lot of places. They they were on the behind David Muir on the evening news. They were on Good Morning America, the CBS, NBC, all the networks carry the pictures. It was on the front page of the LA Times and, and other newspapers. So that's the big thing about working in Santa Barbara is because it takes an hour, two hours for somebody to get up here from LA. Most of the time they're going to be using my images as I get out there because I'll send them, I tweet them out and then all the different media agencies pick up on them and use them. AP is very grateful to my contributions because I help them out while they're scrambling people to come up here that they can use my images in, in the meantime. Yeah, definitely. So contributing to not only the local news cycle, but of course the California news cycle and national news cycle, as we've seen, which is probably so impactful for people who don't know that much about how Santa Barbara has had quite a number of natural disasters in the last few years. So 
That's great. But I wanted to go back to the beginning now and talk about how your photography journey, I guess, led you to the Santa Barbara County Fire Department. Well, I, I grew up in Carpinteria. and my dad was a cop in Carpinteria, one of the first original seven police officers when the city incorporated. So I grew up around public service. And when I graduated high school, when I was getting ready to go to city college and then and continue on, I really didn't know what I want. Like most kids don't really know what they want to do. And so I, I got a camera with my high school graduation money and I took one photography class in high school, my freshman year. And I, at the end of the semester, the guy asked, the teacher asked what I wanted. And I said, I don't know, I'll take a B. And so I got a B. Um, I should have said an A, but I said a B and that's how I, what grade I got. And, uh, I got a job working as a reserve, tried out and did the testing and got hired as a reserve firefighter. And at the time they had a reserve program and that's where they hired their firefighters from. And I did that for eight years. I taught CPR, first aid, did the reserve. When someone was injured, I got promoted to being full-time firefighter while that person was out. And then it was doing both part-time. I was taking pictures at a couple of weekly newspapers at the same time. And I was kind of doing both at once. And I kind of just sat down and I said, okay, well, whichever one I get full-time first, that's what I'll, I'll go with. And I got the newspaper job and I started working for a newspaper and I did that for a number of years, but I always, you know, it's that age old question of pulling at the thread of the tapestry. Do I, do I really want to know what I should have done or should I have done something different? And there was always a regret that, because I experienced a lot of things that I'm very, very grateful for professionally as a photographer, I've got to see so many wonderful things and experience things and go places and see things. But I always kind of wondered, you know, what would have been if I had done the other, the other route. And then thankfully, 10 years later, or 10 years ago, this job came up and I was able to, to transfer over and, and become working for the county fire department this time. And in this role, I, I was back in the fire family, but having the knowledge of the media, that helped tremendously too, because I'm aware of your deadlines and other TV deadlines. And, and I can't tell you how, I guess the LA PIOs are not very helpful because a lot of the LA and national media are saying, wow, you, you called us back. Thank you for calling back. And you knew our deadline. And so I, I try my best to accommodate them because I'm aware of your deadlines and I try to help you because, because I'm trying to get the word out and you, it's a symbiotic relationship and, and we both need each other and you're not an adversary. So I, I've always looked at it that way. Definitely. And you've been, like you said, on both sides of the camera. So you definitely understand I wanted to ask in your book, even though this is a podcast and I wish I could, you know, flash some, some images from the book, I was just wondering if there was any one photo in the book where there's a bit more to the story, maybe something more happened behind the lens that was a bit challenging or exciting or off the cuff that you weren't expecting. Well, the book at Shoreline Publishing, Jim Buckley and Patty Kelly did a tremendous job with the book. They, I'm a horrible promoter of myself. Like I said, I can stand in front of the camera and say the hill is on fire, but talking about myself, it's a lot more difficult. And they did a great job of promoting the book. Patty did a great job of designing the book, but there was, there's no fire pictures in the book. There's no disaster pictures because they wanted the book to be more evergreen and they wanted to, there's not a whole lot of journalistic pictures in there. It's a lot more just slice of life, how wonderful the community is and just the pretty things that everybody in Santa Barbara County likes. And it really is Santa Barbara County, not just Santa Barbara. Um, but, it, and there's also, it's about 80% Santa Barbara County. And then there's 10% of the U S pictures from different trips. And then another 10% from international trips. 
So there's a little bit of, of all three in there. And a lot of the pictures I like, I liked a couple ones. The There's this one that's, it's a King Tide going on right now. And there was a, a shot on the beach that I took with a long lens. And it looks like it's on another planet. All these little silhouettes on the beach with the sun setting behind them. And then I like these kind of mood pictures. I'm not a, bringing in a flash to light situations. I like the mood of the ambient light. And then there was this foggy night of a guy walking along the train tracks near the Amtrak station when it was a real foggy night in Santa Barbara. And just a couple other just little slice of lives, the, the sailboats, the things that everybody loves about Santa Barbara, that hopefully if, if you had to move or you know relatives that did, that they would you know look back on that, all the things that they really love about the county. Yeah. So outside of your work, this is more of an homage to Santa Barbara and everything else you've captured in the meantime. Well, congratulations. Yeah. That's amazing. And I'm so glad that people from Santa Barbara, visiting Santa Barbara, are picking up this book and taking a look at it because it truly does capture the essence of all the good and beautiful parts of Santa Barbara. I mean, there's so much culture in Santa Barbara between music, arts, photography, that not surprised people are still are still in love with Santa Barbara at the end of the day. Still, it's that it's the big town with the small town vibe. I always like yeah. to say, so it's good. Exactly, and it's that everybody knows everybody. Definitely, definitely. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add about not only your book but your previous work and what's to come in the new year? I know it is 2022. How did that even happen? So for 2022, I don't know. I just I it, the whole reason I started taking these pictures was it was beginning of COVID and politics season. And it was like, I'm just going to put one picture a day on my, on my social media. That's nothing related to either one. And I thought oh, it will be over. Well, here we are now two years into it. You know, like COVID's not over yet, but we're getting into other politics season again. So it's like, I guess I got to keep going, but I'm just going to keep trying to put a picture in every day. You know, I know there's a lot to look at on the internet. So I'm grateful that people are stopping by and having something to look at to try and brighten their morning. And I'm just going to keep going and and uh, we'll see what the year brings us. Hopefully it's going to be a, a better year for everyone, a safer year for everyone and uh, another good year for the community. I agree. I hope so as well. Well, thank you so much for coming on and just chatting for a bit about your work. I really appreciate it. It was wonderful talking with you. Thank you very much. You as well. Have a good 22. Once again, I'm Molly McEnany, host of the Indie. Tune in next week for another episode.